the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, the Agriculture Minister federally says he's pleased to see the supermarkets drop the price of meat, but he says they could do even better. And we talk to an emerging scientist who thinks as things heat up, we can increase the productivity of dairy cows by selecting and breeding the cool ones. Definitely breed-wise, but even within breeds, we really want to pull out individual animals and see how we can better help them to either cope with the stress or breed from them because they've already sort of developed that innate ability to cope themselves. So you go with the super cool ones? Exactly. (laughs) Hot cows, cool solutions. (laughs) More on that story shortly and we'll also look at uh, the season for dairy farmers in the south of the state as well. It's uh, a lot better than uh, elsewhere around the state at the moment. It's uh, coming up to six minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour. But first up today, the Agriculture Minister has welcomed a decision by supermarket giant Woolworths to finally drop the price of lamb. Sadia prices for sheep and lamb, as we know, have fallen drastically in 2023, with some categories down 70% off their peak. Woolworths have announced from today, 26 lamb products will be cut in price by 20%. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has welcomed the news, but said Woolworths and other supermarkets could do a lot more. I certainly welcome that decision by Woolworths to pass on some of those savings to Australian consumers. I know when I go and buy my leg of lamb on a Saturday to make a roast, I've seen the price rise in recent years and months, and I think everyone has been going through the same thing. So to provide some cost of living relief in that way with lamb prices at the supermarket, I think will be really welcomed by Australian shoppers. Has it come um, too late, no- though? Because sale yard prices had fallen substantially in the months prior. Yeah, look, I I think I really empathise with uh, sheep and cattle producers because we've seen prices for both commodities fall significantly in recent months. Uh, And I think it's been very frustrating to those producers to not see that reflected in supermarket prices. So over the last few weeks, I've actually been calling on the retailers to do the right thing. Um, But if prices are lower at the farm gate, then they should be reflected at the supermarket shelves as well. And, you know, I think we all recognise that there are additional costs incurred between the farm gate and supermarkets, transportation, processing costs, all those kind of things. But I think everyone was getting a bit jack of seeing such a big discrepancy between the prices farmers were getting and what they were having to pay at the supermarkets. So I'd now like to see the other big retailers join Woolworths and pass on those reductions. Uh, and, you know, without with, with any luck before too long, we'll see producers getting better prices as we work through the sort of oversupply um, that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Do you think you may have played a role in Woolworths' decision here? Oh, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to, to sort of claim that, Warwick, but, you know, I thought it was important as the Minister to deliver a message to the retailers that they do need to meet community expectations. You know, I think traditionally it's always been a few months between seeing livestock prices fall and, and seeing supermarket prices fall, but, you know, I, I was keen to use my position to put a bit of pressure on the retailers and I'm pleased that one of them's responded. As I say, I'd now like to see the other ones do the same thing. Woolworths are dropping the price by 20%. Indicators are around 40 to 50% lower than, say, their peaks in March earlier this year as well. Is there is there room for more price drops or price cuts at the retail yeah. level? Yeah, I think, I think there is, Warwick, as time goes on. And I think we recognise that 
Um, the prices are being a bit held up at the retail level also by stocks uh, that are already held um, that, and forward contracts that retailers entered into with producers and processors when prices were higher. But as we see those figures change, again, I would like to see those prices come down for consumers. I think all of us understand that Australians are feeling real cost of living pressure at the moment. We've been doing what we can as a government in trying to pass on energy rebates and cheaper medicines, cheaper childcare, things like that. But, you know, if we can do more around food and grocery prices for Australians, that'll really help a lot of family budgets too. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt talking there to Warwick Long. What do you think about that 20% down? Of course, we know that some categories down 70%, particularly at the sale yards. Uh, you can uh, send us a text here at the Country Hour, uh, your thoughts on that issue. Um, 0467922684 is a number to text me here at the Country Hour. It's 10 minutes past 12. We're staying with meat news, and the Australian Meat Industry Council says strike action from some workers will cause disruptions to processing that could take days to resolve. Government on-plant vets and meat inspectors that are community and public service sector union members will um, strike strike for one hour at the end of their shift today, that's uh, Wednesday, and again on Friday. It's part of a rolling action from the CPSU and it's taking it's been taken after members rejected the federal government's last offer of 11.2% increase wages over three years. AMIC CEO Patrick Hutchinson says the meat processing sector is collateral damage in these negotiations. He tells Lydia Burton the impact of the shutdown could be wide felt. Meat cannot be inspected on behalf of our international markets as per our requirements to export to them. And so we will either have to put that product on the domestic market, which is already burgeoning under the weight of a huge livestock increase in um, supply, or we'll have to close for an hour, or we'll have to go and then eat into overtime, which is quite incredulous considering the fact that um, those people who will then be taking that strike action will then be uh, having to work overtime where they get paid more. So inevitably they just almost get paid twice, which has got to be exceptionally galling to our members. Does a one-hour stop have that much of an impact, though? Isn't that like an extended lunch break? Uh, far from it. You know, we're very upset of being used as a bargaining chip with the federal government by the CPSU. Never spoke to us. Never engaged with the industry that they're going to impact. Never spoke to the department themselves. And frankly, you know, this is unions gone wild uh, as as in within this process. So, uh, you know, stopping for an hour on a factory where, you know, if you're a lamb processor of a certain magnitude, you could be processing 10 a minute. All of a sudden, you know, that's a number of lambs that you then can't process within that hour, especially if you're bulk export. We've got 86 registered export establishments in this country. They uh, run 92 chains, uh, utilising 94 shifts. So there is a lot at stake here. And when you are processing, boning, packaging and then loading out uh, product in that way, these are highly attuned manufacturers. So turning a factory off for an hour is akin to basically turning it off for six hours, trying to get everything back to um, back to functionality again. And so does the whole plant have to stop with those two positions out? So we're talking about meat inspectors and on-plant vets, or can the processing continue uh, without them on site, or does everything it, come to a stop without those two roles? 
look, the processing can continue if it's going onto the domestic market or can be diverted to the domestic market. But these are high, highly functioning factories that have multitudes of brands. They are processing a multitude of different types of livestock uh, at any one day or at any one time, going underpinned by a multitude of brands and specifications, going to a multitude of markets. So it's not as simplistic as just saying, oh, well, they're not here, so we can just keep processing and they can come back. So if you are heavily slated towards uh, export markets, then them not being there means you can't process. Did we get a call or any any information in regards to their strike? No, we didn't. So that's the the sheer lack of respect that this union has shown our industry. Uh, and at a time when farmers are struggling and trying to get livestock off farms and everything else, this has a knock-on effect that can last not just for hours but for days trying to get back into uh, a rhythm so, do so you think producers will feel the effect of it through prices and reduced capacity? I think what pr- producers will find is that it, it, it's not necessarily about a reduction in price. What it is is producers may be sending livestock in on those days or days around that and they will have to wait another week, another 10 days potentially, while in, you know while companies then reset themselves. So is there uh, an animal welfare risk in, in terms of that? Absolutely. So, And that's what I'm saying is that this, uh, this union has been exceptionally reckless in their process. We're collateral damage. They should be taking it in-house and managing it there accordingly. That's what I wanted to ask was uh, when uh, industries are fighting for better pay or better conditions, a strike is the normal action. Was there another way for them to achieve this? Absolutely, by doing it in-house. Don't forget, they're impacting a third party here. We are not party to these negotiations. Anyone who wants to strike within the processing sector over an EBA or whatever else, is doing that employee to employer. We don't employ these people, but they have to operate within our facilities in order to ensure that we meet the requirements of our export markets. Patrick Hutchinson is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council. He was speaking with Lydia Burton, the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations and the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries have been contacted for comment but uh, didn't provide any comment to us at the time of going to air. And in a statement, the CPSU National Secretary, Melissa Donnelly, says union members would continue to apply pressure to the federal government until a revised pay offer was on the table. It's 16 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. One of this year's emerging scientists is researching hot cows for cool solutions. Alice Shirley is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney exploring ways to optimise individual management of dairy cows. This work is designed to reduce heat stress in dairy cattle and to find the best ways to make that happen. Alice says she's got a strong passion for animal health and welfare and she thinks that we can actually select individual animals that stay cool and maybe breed from them in the future to increase productivity in what is an increasingly hot climate. 
Uh, I am here at the University of Sydney, so it's a really great way for us to show our research and encourage a lot of development as part of this Dairy Art program. It's a really good opportunity. And farmers are really keen for the knowledge. They want to know the latest research. Absolutely. It's a really great way. It's a great collaboration between industry, research, farmers, and it's a great opportunity to get that research out to everybody who might be able to benefit from it. So what are you focusing on? I'm looking at heat stress in dairy cattle broadly and my presentation tomorrow is specific to water intake in dairy cattle and how we can use that to address heat stress. And what have you been uh, what have you found? So we are finding a lot of trends in our water intake so as you would expect, more water intake in summer, less in winter, but we are seeing a lot of a lot more temperature variation in winter, which is suggesting that we might be able to provide cold water to our cattle in summer to help provide that heat stress alleviation. Uh, but importantly, we're seeing a lot of variability between individuals, and we really want to play off that and see if there's a way that we can identify what's causing that variability and breed from it ultimately. So you think there might be some breeds that cope better with the hot weather? Definitely breed-wise, but even within breeds, we really want to pull out individual animals and see how we can better help them to either cope with the stress or breed from them because they've already sort of developed that innate ability to cope themselves. So you go with the super cool ones? Exactly. Hot cows, (laughs) cool solutions. (laughs) But uh, you mentioned cool water. Uh, So uh, wouldn't that, wouldn't you need to, you know, well, how do you keep it cool? Do you you send it through a refrigerator or what do you do? Excellent question. It's not something that we've explored completely yet, but the data is telling us that if they are drinking cold water, which they are doing in winter, they're having a much higher internal temperature drop and we're suggesting that that might be something we could play off through the summer months okay so and i guess to like some of the dams that we have in australia are really cold even in summertime so mm-hmm. other water courses probably are too maybe you investigate that yeah absolutely i mean playing off what farms already have access to is really key we don't want to be giving them anything that's not feasible to change management wise so if we can give them viable solutions that don't take too many changes but can still have a really big impact on their productivity and profitability that's our end goal and ultimately we are facing global warming we we, temperature in australia i think they're saying it has gone up by one and a half degrees so it's not going to go away anytime soon definitely not going to go away and we need all of our young minds like uh, coming towards coming for this emerging scientist competition uh plenty of research ability and really promising next generation coming through but what sort of reduction in productivity do you see when you when you do have hot cows so all sorts of things milk production is obviously that key factor um they're eating less they are drinking more they have a lot of sort of behavioral and physiological changes in themselves but that main output is reduced milk production and unless we can find strategies to fix that there is a reduced financial output for the farmers at the end of the day and is there a quality reduction in the milk that they're producing too uh there can be yes so there's a lot of factors that play hand in hand with that reduced quantity um but Primarily, if we can increase that quantity, there will be quality benefits in there as well. And can you give us a sense of are there particular breeds that stay cooler than others and are there particular you know, traits in animals that you've been able to identify as yet? Uh, we haven't been looking breed specific. So the data that I've been looking at are three different farms in Victoria with mixed breeds. Uh, I know that previous research have identified some variation within breed, but we're really wanting to look into breed 
Uh, I know that some hair colour can play into it. Obviously, the black cattle are bringing in that heat absorption more from the sun. Uh, so that definitely plays a factor. But there's so many contributing factors, it's really hard to pull just one piece that is the solution to the puzzle. <laughs> OK, OK. So you're not, you're not putting the, the, the mozza on the, on the black cattle just yet. But I, I thought that was an urban myth. I thought that had been uh, disputed uh, by, by some of those breeds. But that is the case. You found it. Yeah, it can It can definitely play a factor, but as I said, there's so many contributing things that it's really hard to just pin the tail on one donkey, for use of a better term. Um, you don't want to just, yeah, pick out one individual factor. There's so many things that are contributing, and that's what we want to really play off in this research. And you've be, obviously been talking to some farmers about this issue. What are they asking you? What do they want to know? I guess it comes down to things that are feasible for them to implement. There's plenty of solutions out there, but the making sure that the research that we're doing is practical and applicable for farmers that are the ones at that front line, that's the really important thing. Okay, so they want to be able to put it into place, like, tomorrow? Absolutely. I mean, everybody wants that heightened production, heightened profitability out of this and if they're able to increase animal welfare at the same time obviously the hot cows aren't at their optimum welfare uh, so if they can address that they're very keen to do so okay well good luck with it thank you very much <laughs> alice shirley is a phd candidate at the university of sydney and she's one of the emerging scientists that presented uh, at the university of sydney dairy symposium in fact they're uh, presenting today i think it's 22 minutes past 12 on the country hour uh, on that issue, Jay's texted in saying uh, you can cool your cattle by growing more trees and uh, having more shelter belts. And on the uh, price of meat, we're getting quite a few texts on that one. John says last week uh, it was $40 a kilo for lamb cutlets at Woolworths, uh, says John. And uh, also uh, someone's texted in saying it's the private companies uh, like farmers that wear the effects of the market. Corporates like supermarkets always manage to maintain their profit margin. Uh, for the consumer, I wonder how much meat is there on those uh, skinny sheep chops, says Lou. <laughs> so you <laughs> might be selecting the skinny. It goes by weight, though, I think. So it doesn't go. doesn't matter if they're skinny. But anyway, I, I sort of I sort of get what you're getting at there, Lou. And um, Greg at uh, Ningen says, I only eat, eat lamb. So that's great news about Woolworths dropping the price. This should... Uh, uh, make the big families happy and also keep the weekly grocery bill in check, says Greg. And um, there's uh, um, uh, a couple of other texts there as well uh, about uh, a range of issues, including the meat issue. So there's uh, lots more there. You can send us some more texts, though, about uh, the drop in price of lamb, 20% uh, drop. Of course, we know at the sale yards, uh, the uh, drop for some categories a lot more than that, up to 70%. So 0467-922-684, could the supermarkets do more? Or uh, do you welcome the news about that price drop? It's uh, 23 minutes past 12 on the country hour. Well, staying with dairy news, and many regions of New South Wales, as we know, are coping with drought, maybe even bushfires, or at the very least, dry conditions. Well, Ruth Kidd is a dairy farmer whose family runs a big dairy operation at Finlay in southern New South Wales. Season-wise, she thinks they're some of the lucky ones with the full water allocation, recent useful rain, and the crops looking good. I caught up with Ruth at the Dairy Research Foundation Symposium yesterday and asked her what farmers get out of these sorts of events. Oh, for us, it's, we just want to know what's 
what's happening and what's going on and to meet up with all the other farmers and industry people that you don't get to see every day and and find out what's going on. It's like it's a really important part of our business to keep up to latest information and know what's going on to keep ahead of ahead of anything that's coming behind us, sh- pushing us along. And, and what about your place? How the, how the season's been going for you? Are we doing okay? Yes, we've had a really wet winter, um, so that was a bit of a problem. But um, since then it's dried out. We've had nice rains and we've had a good season so far. We're a bit late on the season, but we'll, we'll get there. You've got a, quite a big operation? Yeah, we milk about 1,800 cows um, on two different farms at the moment and we're just developing another farm. How would you characterise where you are at the moment? Um, we're probably in a good position. We're not like up here where we've had it's been so dry. We've we're, we've been pretty good. So we're, we've got a hundred percent allocation for our water this year. So that'll see us through this season really well. And you've also had some rain too. Yes, yes. So yes, yeah, perfect timing for the rain for the crops and everything because we have cropping part of our business as well. So just about to start harvest. And but up around here and into the Hunter and further north, drought conditions. So you know, I mean, you must be feeling uh, <laughs> you've you dosed a bullet so far. Exactly, but it will change, and yeah, as soon as our water allocation um, changes, and with the Murray Darling Basin plans to take back another 450 gig, that will decimate the area. So really concerning. Because they're saying that there are people that have put their hand up to sell already. So you're worried about that. I think there will always be people ready to sell because they want to get out or their age or whatever situation they need to sell. So um, it's sad that the government will take advantage of those situations. Like We need water to be able to grow anything to feed Australia, so we need, we need the production. And you're worried about the connectivity or are you just worried about the uh, production for the region, the small towns, that sort of thing? Oh, the whole, the whole thing. The, the, the small towns being able to actually access the water and when you when and when you need it so that you are efficient and everything it's all really critical and the the fewer the the people that are, can use the water the, the the less efficient the system will become so you're worried about the sort of the broken lines in the chain if if people do sell their water oh yes it's already caused a lot of problems in Victoria probably not so much in our region just yet but it will become more and more of a problem. Well, that's maybe why we've seen more opposition from Victorians. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and, but there's a lot of opposition in, in southern New South Wales as well. Mm. Just that you don't hear about it that much up here. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. No worries. Thank you. Ruth Kidd, who's a dairy farmer. The uh, family runs a big dairy operation at Finlay in southern New South Wales. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 27 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the protocol for exporting the Australian Hass avocados has been approved by India following a very successful trial run. Once accredited, avocado growers from all regions of Australia will be able to export to China. Australian production is forecast to increase strongly over the next few years to around 170,000 tonnes per annum. John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia and he says growing export markets will help increase returns for growers. The approval of Australian avocados to India 
has been gazetted. So that's great news. That's the final step for us to start moving on uh, sending avocados to India. So from this point, we'll be able to start working with the Australian government to accredit growers and packers uh, to be able to supply uh, strain avocados to India. And so now that this has been given the green light, do you expect producers, avocado producers from all over Australia to, to be taking part in this, this new export opportunity? Yeah, we certainly, we certainly do. Um, at the moment, Western Australia is currently in, in full swing with their, their harvest uh, and they've got a you know, big crop this year, uh, quite a lot of fruit going to Japan and, and Thailand, which was the market that was recently opened. Um, but given the timeframes for this accreditation process and the training and so on, um, it's likely that we'll pick up Western Australia for India next, next season. So our focus will be starting with North Queensland uh, in the new year uh, getting those businesses that are interested in supplying India, uh, getting them trained and, and accredited um, so that the uh, new season fruit out of North Queensland can, uh, can be exported to India. And then we'll work our way down the coast as the different regions come into their production time slot uh, going through the same process. And what about the industry in New South Wales? Are you hearing much from growers on the mid-north and uh, from the mid-north coast and the north coast? Are, are they particularly interested in, in taking advantage of this new export opportunity? Yes, absolutely. Um, very excited, as everyone is around the, uh, around the country. So we will be working to train and accredit uh, businesses uh, in, in New South Wales um, prior to their supply period next year. And what will this mean for, for the market domestically? Because obviously there's been quite a glut of avocados uh, this year. Has that contributed to, to prices being really driven down for, for producers? Yes, certainly there's been a very strong supply into the domestic market. Um, we've been working to try and build these export markets as fast as we can. We've seen massive increases in our exports of Australian avocados, albeit off a pretty small base. But our, uh, our exports for the 12 months till now is uh, almost 14,000 tonnes. A few years ago, only a few years ago, just prior to COVID, we were doing about two or 3,000 tonnes per annum. So we've really ramped things up. But, you know, there's plenty of fruit to go around. There'll still be a lot of fruit uh, marketed domestically. You know, the Australian market is a, is a very good market and we'll continue to, uh, to supply Australian customers and we really need the domestic market to, to grow significantly as well. We're expecting our crop supply to be about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Uh, it's currently around 130 to 140,000 tonnes, so there's still quite a lot of growth coming over the next few years with new trees coming online into production. So, you know, we'll be pushing very hard for new export markets, building the export markets we've got, and certainly building and, uh, and developing further the Australian domestic market. Do you have concerns, though, about the market domestically here? Because they've, they're facing some significant challenges when it comes to the, the price that they're getting back for their product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's tough. There's no doubt it's tough at the moment. I guess one thing with the, the lower pricing that we're seeing domestically is that it's bringing new customers into the, the category, new buyers. And so hopefully, you know, over time, as we can strengthen demand further domestically, we'll see those 
those new consumers stick with the category. Because at the moment, we've got about sort of 75 to 80% household penetration. We've got, um, we've got a, a, you know, a fairly small group of absolute avocado lovers. So um, we, we need to get more people consuming avocados more frequently. And uh, personally, I think there's still a lot of room to grow uh, in the domestic market. But it does take time. You can't, you can't do it over, overnight. Um, we've seen significant increases in domestic consumer demand over the last 10 years. Uh, so we know it's possible. Uh, we know there's room to grow and we just need to keep pushing, pushing to, uh, to increase that consumption domestically. Increase consumption domestically. Well, uh, tell that to my son. He eats a lot of avocados. It's 28 minutes to one on the country. That was John Tyus, who's the CEO of Avocados Australia, speaking to Tina Quinn. And uh, also the other thought uh, we had just before we go to uh, uh, news headlines is Optus. Of course, we're hearing that uh, some farm operations have been affected by the Optus outage as well. So uh, text us in to let us know what sort of uh, outage you're having at your place and uh, let us know the sort of concerns you have about that. 0467-922-684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But uh, let's go now to some news headlines. Jamie McKinnell's here because Adam's doing his civic duty, but uh, I guess Optus is the lead story at the moment. It certainly is. Good afternoon, Michael. Optus has been unable to identify the cause of an outage affecting millions of its mobile phone and internet customers, but says there's no indication it's a cyber attack. The outage has impacted hundreds of thousands of businesses who've been unable to take electronic payments and some government services, public health systems and public transport systems have also reported problems. An appeals court is set to be tasked with determining if New South Wales woman Kathleen Folbig should be exonerated in the wake of her being pardoned following decades of being called a child killer. In June, Ms Folbig was pardoned after 20 years in jail for killing her four children. A full report from an inquiry led by retired Chief Justice Tom Bathurst has now been released. He will refer the matter to the Court of Criminal Appeal for consideration of the question whether the convictions should be quashed. And the US Congress has held a bipartisan vigil to mark one month since since Hamas's attack on Israel. 1,400 people were killed and more than 200 others taken hostage. Democrat and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries says America stands with Israel in its hour of great need. And Michael, I'll have more news in half an hour. Okay, well, we'll be listening. It's uh, We'll certainly want to get more detail about the Optus. I can't believe that after hours and hours, they still, well, they're saying they don't have any idea what caused it. Yeah, but the big the big comment that, that we heard from the CEO was that it's not uh, a cyber, cyber attack, attack according to indications. So mm. that's, I guess, reassuring. But it is frustrating for everyone who's been without internet for most of today mm. um, to still know that there's no uh, indication of what, what has caused this. Oh, it's quite incredible. Yeah. 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 All right. It just shows how reliant we are on technology. <laughs> it does. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that, Jamie. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 25 to 1. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details now. And uh, Dylan Bird's at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are so, you? Good. So your satellite's still up and running then, is it? There, you're Yeah, not, not, seems like it. Uh, no issues for us, which is great. Not, not run by brag about that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, so what's happening? We had, have we a little bit of rain, uh, spots of rain here and there? Yeah, that's right. So we've had some rainfall um, in showers, and at, at times uh, heavy rainfall, um, particularly uh, for the uh, far west. So it looks like places like uh, Tendau, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, and Poonkari. 
um, in the uh, far southern west um, received um, a, um, between uh, 30, 30 uh, and uh, 25 uh, millimetres um, in a couple of those storms um, that were pretty uh, severe yesterday. Um, also, it looks like uh, parts of the southeast received a bit of a drenching um, in places, uh, particularly uh, just near Kuma. Um, we saw around almost uh, 20 to 25 millimetres falling in those areas. Um, but uh, generally speaking, very sparse, and most of the rain was less than uh, 10 millimetres um, over uh, the far west, um, parts of Riverina and a and a drop or two into the uh, central western plains. Right, okay. And what can we expect for the next few days? Yeah, so similar sort of story where most of the, most of the precip- precipitation will be um, uh, triggered by storms. So although we might see 20 mils um, or I- even up to 30 mils um, over parts of uh, the southern um, inland uh, tomorrow, um, it looks like um, we could see... Uh, those falls being very isolated. Um, and, uh, yes, similar story um, over... over uh, sorry, not for tomorrow, for today. Sorry, I'll just rephrase, um, rephrase that. Right, but okay. today, yep. it looks like over the, um, over the southern inland, um, we could see uh, some of those higher falls that I described earlier um, repeating today. Um, so uh, eastern Riverina and um, maybe parts of the Monaro country, um, and then it looks like the bullseye uh, for the showers and storm activity is shifting a little bit further northeastward, um, looking more like over the central western plains, um, the southeast coast, and uh, parts of the Illawarra and Blue Mountains. Um, and then on, so that's for, for Thursday, and then over Friday, it looks like um, it's really starting to uh, weaken uh, the signal for storm activity, um, but showers still uh, available over to the north coast and uh, northern ranges. Okay, but, well, that'd um, be handy for those bushfire-affected areas if they get a bit of rain there. Yeah, that's right. And, um, I mean, they did get a bit of a drenching uh, over the weekend, mm. but, yeah, I mean, they could always do with some more. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, still drought conditions up there too, so the more the merrier. Mm. Mm. All right. Uh, okay, Dylan, thanks for that. Yep, no worries. Oh, and I guess I'll just remind you as well that the fire danger ratings are increasing over the weekend oh, okay. um, over yep. parts of the west um, and in the northern inland areas. So um, there's an inland trough that's moving a bit f- further northeast, and with that, we could see uh, high fire danger ratings um, reoccurring, but it doesn't look like we'll see anything in the extreme rating category yet. And that's uh, higher ratings, what, on the weekend, is that right? Yeah, that's right, for Saturday and Sunday, um, mm. mostly over ranges and slopes um, in the northwest and uh central and parts of the southern west as well okay dylan thanks for that cheers no worries 21 minutes to one abc listen podcasts radio news music and more talking about the weather how are things looking at your place 55 percent of the state is now in drought or drought affected according to the dpi many farmers across new south wales have had to make some hard decisions about destocking or buying in feed if you're buying in feed a webinar is being held tonight by local land services that might be of interest to you beef consultant jeff jeff house from forbes will be speaking at the webinar and he told our reporter keely johnson there's plenty to think about when it comes to feed options in these dry times. A lot of producers and a lot of cattle producers have potentially had experience feeding stock, but the challenge is every time um, what resources are available can change quite differently. So what uh, grains might be available, what feed might be available. 
for the stock, so there can be quite significant variation in that from, from one time to the next. And also, just um, what's happening in the market. So one of the previous webinars sort of talked about that decision of whether you sell stock or whether you, you retain them and feed them. And, and all of those things just combine to make each um, situation slightly different. So that's from property to property, and you know, from year to year, the, the situation can be vastly different. And as you said, it is obviously unique to each farmer and their property and their situation. But we are hearing of people destocking. Why would that be a smart move for some farmers during these difficult times? Look, committing to, to feeding cattle when, it, when it's dry, it, it is a large commitment. And just depending on the resources um, that different individuals have got on hand, their ability to source um, feeds and the like, that, that will enter into that conversation and, and that decision-making. But also, um, you know, it would be great to have a crystal ball, but, you know, how long um, this period's going to last, how long they might be feeding stock for, the potential to be feeding over Christmas um, if they head down that path. They're all things that, that producers need to take into account and, you know, really enter those things in to, to make the best decision. And for the average person, how expensive can it be to feed cattle? <laughs> yeah, look, you know, they're, they're large animals and um, it can add up quite significantly. So, you know, realistically, it, it can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to feed, um, especially mature stock. So if we're talking about cows, um, you know, we, we need to feed them to keep them productive so that they get back into calf and they, they remain productive in the herd. And a 500, 600 kilo cow, you know, can potentially eat 10 kilos of feed a day. And, you know, that adds up to a significant amount of cost for that producer, depending on, you know, where they're sourcing that feed from, what they might have available. So, yeah, the, the cost can be very significant. Are we seeing the prices of feed going up as well for farmers? Look, feed prices are probably driven more by the climatic conditions. Um, so yeah, absolutely. When it's when it's dry over as big an area um, in northern New South Wales, central New South Wales, up into Queensland, then that has reduced the availability of feed, and that probably has the biggest impact on price. Mm. Um, it's it's very much a, a domestic situation, mind you. Some of the the global when we start talking about grain prices, some of the global impacts um, are also maintaining grain at probably a higher price than what we might have expected for the last couple of years. So, yeah, it, it all interacts and it all impacts in there. Um, producers are using fuel like everybody else. Um, and so, you know, with high fuel prices, that, that's adding to the cost of feeding as well. And, I mean, I'm sure you've been speaking to a lot of producers, particularly around your area. I don't know if you speak to many across the state, but what are you hearing? Is it difficult times? Is it still early stages and maybe some of those difficult decisions are being made now or they're prepping to make them? Or are we already seeing um, the, the strain of these, these hot conditions? Look, it, it's incredibly variable across the state. So I'm based in Forbes in central New South Wales. Conditions here um, are not as bad, so you know we, a lot of the grain growers here have, have had a harvest, and you know there is still a bit of feed in the paddocks. Um, I know some of those producers further north, um, some of those areas like Walgett, Canamble, um, and you know even into the Hunter, 
look, some of those producers have had to make these decisions months ago around and, you know, potentially been feeding cattle for quite a long time. So it is highly variable. The south of the state um, is in a lot better situation at the moment than the north. But, um, yeah, it's highly variable from one area to the next. And that's why it's wonderful to have your expertise, which farmers can um, receive if they tune into the webinar. Tell me a little bit about what you will be discussing in this webinar. We're specifically looking at feeding cattle in dry times. So the topic is really aimed at uh, cattle producers and trying to just work through the process of what they they might feed, um, what sort of targets they might select for different classes of stock, and just choosing the best feeds and and uh, the best type of uh, feeding program that suits where they're at at this moment. Beef cattle consultant Jeff House there. He'll be hosting the Feeding Cattle in Dry Times webinar, which is tonight between seven and eight. Producers can join in the discussion right after, uh, right after the webinar or during the webinar rather, and uh, right across the state. And it's free, and you can find the link in the local land services website. And that report put together by Keely Johnson. It's a quarter to one on the country hour. Getting quite a few texts um, about the, first of all, the meat prices. We heard lamb prices dropping by 20%. Uh, some people were saying, well, you know, the at the sale yards, uh, they dropped by 70%. So the supermarkets t- could do a lot better than that. Barney has texted in to say, it's pure, is it purely a coincidence that Coles and Woolworths are dropping their lamb prices by 20%? At the same time, he says perhaps the ACCC should have a look at that. And we also had a story about macadamias um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, avocados uh, and uh, discussion about macadamia prices as well. Um, uh, And John's bemoaning the prices that they're getting for macadamias at the moment. He's saying that uh, he gets $1.70 a kilo, but in the supermarket in Ballina, just uh, he's in the Richmond Valley. He says in Ballina they're charging thirty-eight dollars fifty per kilo. Uh, so he's uh, making that comparison between the uh, prices paid uh, by the supermarkets to buy them from the growers, uh, like the meat, but the uh, huge markup that the supermarkets have for uh, macadamias uh, as well. He's making that point there. And on the phones, Lynn has texted in to let us know the phone is finally working again. She's obviously with Optus, and she said. All of their messages just came through. So, yeah, what sort of damage did it do to your business or what sort of delay have you seen as a result of that uh, on your farm? Uh, You can send us a text uh, with that Optus outage. I gather still continuing in some parts. 0467 ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Optus Chaos, 10 million customers and half a million businesses affected by the outage. The telco scrambling to find out what went wrong. From China to the Cooks, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese talking geopolitics and security at the Pacific Islands Forum. And the big show, Glenn Maxwell, delivers just that, wowing the Cricket World Cup with one of the best one-day performances of all time. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
The New South Wales sugarcane industry has delivered its lowest crop in more than a decade as a result of last year's catastrophic floods. The saving grace for cane growers was the record sugar price and rainfall during recent planting to boost the future crops. Sunshine Sugar's CEO Chris Connors is hopeful that 2024 will be an improvement on this year's 1.1 million tonne crop. He told Kim Honan that uh, this year's result was expected, though, given the flood impact on both the two-year-old and one-year-old crops. We didn't expect much more than what we got, but the mills handled it all pretty well. The growers obviously had issues out in the field with the crops the way they were, but they got through it all pretty well as well. And the mills themselves ran well. We had Condong one week where it was had lost time of only less than a quarter of an hour, which is pretty much unheard of in, in the sugar industry. So it was an exceptional performance in some areas. So overall, uh, mills pretty good. Not so good as start at Harwood, but they, they got over that and really got on with it. So, yeah, recoveries are good. CCS levels were very high, and I think... As I've said in the past year or so, the new varieties are really performing well. So we look forward to the next season. There's plenty of planting going on. This rain's going to help a lot. It got pretty dry there for a while and everything slowed up, but this rain's going to make a pretty big difference. Yeah, some beautiful rain for those young crops. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, any of the plantings that have been in the ground now are going to kick away really well. They did anyway. Um you know, so it did get dry and, and the growers stopped planting, but now they'll get back stuck back, back into it. And with the new ground and um, and the plantings that are going on, I expect we're going to have a reasonable recovery next season and the year after we'll be starting to get back towards where we want to be. So total crop this year, just over 1.1 million tonnes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a little bit more than 1.1. And we haven't been that low for a long time. Uh, How long? Uh, yeah remember the year 2000 and say i'll say 11 or 12 uh we only we only crossed 900 odd thousand that year that was after some pretty big frosts that destroyed things so and more recently we're averaging 1.8 1.9 and that's where we want to be new ground going in you know we've had 1500 hectares of applications some yet to be approved but they'll all get approved eventually and you know with that going in the ground and the growers putting back in what what we're seeing at the moment, we're, we're we're looking to recover pretty well. So, sorry, when you say applications, what for new, for new plantings, expansions? That's, that's right, new ground hectares, fifteen hundred hectares of, of new ground. Yeah, mainly out of tea tree, some out of macadamias, and some out of cattle. So, and some ground that had gone out of cane um, coming back in. It's all about sugar price. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, we've, you know, we've locked away sugar prices now for the next three years. We might have missed the top of the market by a little bit, but not much. And when you look at what we're going to deliver for sugar prices, um, growers this season at Harwood and Broadwater are going to get over $60 a tonne for cane. We've never, ever done that before. Condong's a little bit lower. Their CCS levels are down, but they're around 57 so... You know, that's just absolutely amazing for us. So we are lucky in that respect. Um, sugar prices have probably saved us. Yeah, so has that eased the pain for the lower yields for growers this year? Oh, it'll ease the pain, no doubt about that. But, you know, still a big job ahead of them. Got to get that ground replanted and that and still recovering from the shock, I reckon, of, um, you know, that catastrophic event. It was just 
terrible. It was a terrible event. So what do you expect the, the crop to be looking like next year? It'll be an improvement, no doubt about that. I think if we can get 1.4 to 1.5, that will be a good outcome. And then the following year, uh, I expect we'll be up more more closer to 1.7. So, yeah, all starting to recover. Uh, when, and then when you can get the consistency with your two-year-old crop across the board, then we'll start to see some really good outcomes. I mean, if we get 1.6, 1.7 million tonnes at the prices that we've locked away, the milling operations are quite sustainable, and then when you add the refining operations into it, it's uh, pretty solid. Well, this year the the Sunshine Sugar cl- um, received close to $15 million in, in flood recovery grants, of which $2 million was for a distillery. Are plans on track for that? The $2 million grant was cancelled. Um, our joint venture with Sydney Rum Distillery didn't work out. Uh, we had major issues with theirs their sustainability and viability, so we pulled out of that. So we gave that back, and then uh, the anchor grant, we got a bit over $12 million out of the 50, um, and that was very, very helpful at the end of the day. If we hadn't got that, we might have been in a bit of strife, but, um, yeah, it went through all the processes, worked with the department, ended up with the $10 million before 30th June, and we got the other $2 million in September. Are you looking for another partner for the distillery now, or is it is it too late to get that two million dollars back? No, we won't get the two million back. But yes, we have have looked for another partner, and we've got some pretty exciting announcements coming in the next probably four, three, four weeks. Yep. So still on the cards for a rum distillery then? Yeah, it sure is. And uh, your mushroom mill is up and operating now. You're selling bags. Yeah, yeah so it's. Um, it's not operating at the level we want to, but it, it has improved, that's for sure. And we're getting a lot of interest out there, particularly locally. It's amazing. Um, you know, we just put some into the local produce store down there at um, Harwood, and, and they, they've been selling out within days. So yeah, we'll keep doing that, and we're going to then target some of the local markets like that, but then also some of the bigger mushroom growers that are around. Um, we've got a probably a dozen of them that are keen to see see us produce and uh, supply them. Chris Connors, who's CEO of Sunshine Sugar, uh, the uh, industry delivering its lowest crop in more than a decade, but uh, prices certainly looking up at the moment. It's uh, time for markets. First up, let's go to Lismore Cattle. Good falls of rain over the supply area resulted in a smaller yarding of 436 head, consisting mainly of young cattle and reduced numbers of cows. Quality of the young cattle was much better, with fewer plain condition weaners through the sale. Restocker weaner steers, they sold firm to 10 cents dearer for the well-bred steers. They ranged from 150 to 264. Restocker weaner heifers were slightly dearer, 122 to 168 cents. Few processor vealers, they also sold to a dearer trend, 156 to 248. And a few yearling steers topped to 244. Heifers up to 192. Bullocks topped at 210 cents and grown heifers up to 175. Light medium weight cows, they were 20 to 30 cents dearer. Two score cows, 106 to 165. Three score cows averaged 183. And heavy cows were 20 cents dearer, ranging from 180 to 204 cents. This is Doug Robson and Lismore. 
Thanks for that, Doug. Let's uh, go to uh, the Yass sheep sale now. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped to 9,000 and this included 5,000 new season lambs. There were limited numbers of prime trade and heavyweights and plenty of lambs drying off in the skin and lacking cover. Old lambs were mostly heavy trades or heavier and there was a good run of Sean Marinos. The new season two score lambs to 18 kilos were down 5 to $10 and sold from 38 to $67. The trades were firm, 22 to 24 kilos, 95 to 112 averaging 440. The 24 to 26, 108 to 124 or 465 cents and over 26 kilos reached the top of 130. The old two score lambs, $22 to 58. Medium heavy trades were 4 to 6 cheaper, 62 to 89. Heavyweights were down 10 and reached 130. Merino lambs lifted 8 and topped at $99 and the best for hoggets was 65. Mutton numbers lifted to 6,500. The quality was mostly good. Prices were back 5 to 6. Medium weight used 14 to 36. Heavy crossbreds reached 51 and Merino weathers 58. This has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Carcor Shima lambs. David Monk. Numbers are back by 2,400 for a yarding of 4,480 lambs. It was a fair quality yarding with some good runs of well finished trade weight new season lambs and only a couple of pens of heavyweights. There were also good numbers of secondary new season lambs lacking finish and weight. Trade weight new season lambs were 7 to 14 cheaper, selling from 45 to 125 to average between 4.15 and 4.85 cents a kilogram. The few trade weight old lambs were up to 17 cheaper, selling from 50 to 110. Heavyweight lambs were 17 cheaper, with the new season lambs over 24 kilograms, selling to 127. Good numbers of new season lambs to the restockers were around firm, selling from 8 to 81 dollars. Hobbit sold to 57. There were 2,100 mixed mutton yarder, where most sheep were 3 to 5 cheaper, except for the heavyweights, which were 3 dearer. Merino ewes sold from 5 to 45, while crossbred ewes sold from 8 to 47. Very heavy crossbred weathers sold to $55, with most sheep selling from 70 to 115 cents per kilogram carcass weight. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. Let's go to cow, sheep and lambs now. Rob Pearce, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Lamb numbers increased up by 1,500 to 4,800 lambs. Clyde was good for the fresh lambs with an increase of secondary lines throughout. And they're mainly trading heavy pen stores continue to increase in supply. Medium and heavy trade new seasons were 5 to 10 cheaper. 20, 22 kilos, 92 to 104. 22 to 24, 100 to 117, averaging 450 cents. Heavy weights were 5 cheaper. 24 to 26, 114 to 126. 26 to 30, 129 to 132, averaging 460 to 470 cents. Stores sold from 15 to 76. Mutton numbers increased by 400 for 1900. Quality was good with some larger runs of heavy use and prices lifted 3 to 10. Heavy merino use sold from 32 to 46, averaging 145 cents. Extra heavy first cross use sold from 38 to 47, averaging 125 cents. This has been Rob Pierce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks, Rob. Let's go to Mossvale Cattle, Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Just over 700 cattle sold to the usual buying group. Quality was good to fair with grain assistance stock well supplied. Heavy exports were in short supply and there were 84 cows penned. The market was very solid with plainer store types lifting in prices 10 to 15 cents. 
Beal 178 to 342, Trade Steers 170 to 252, Peter Steers Lightweight Euro Types $2 to 298, Trade Heifers 170 to 270, Heavy Steers and Bullocks 182 to $2, Heavy Heifers with Shape 165 to 180, Heavy Cows 170 to 180, and Leaner Types 110 to 148. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks for that, uh, Leanne. Let's go to uh, the last word from Dawn at Dubbo. She says, why isn't the ACCC looking after consumers? There's too much corporate greed, and she also has a bit of a go at the banks and interest rates going up as well. It's coming up to news time on the Country Hour. It's one o'clock.